You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Jane Jacobs is beloved by planners and urban advocates for her embrace of walkable mixed-use neighborhoods. However, when I first read Jane Jacobs, that's not what I took away at all. As a civil engineer, as an urban planner, I read her books as a scolding of me and my profession's arrogance and a call for those who would purport to plan to be more humble in their service instead of master creators. This is Jane Jacobs week at Strong Towns, and I have on the line with me Nolan Gray from Market Urbanism. He wrote a piece titled, Who Plans? Jane Jacobs' Hayekian Critique of Urban Planning. I want to start with a brief excerpt. This is from the piece that Nolan wrote. Quote, for all the love of Jane Jacobs has received from urban planners and policymakers since her first book was published, her greatest theoretical innovation seems to be largely disregarded. Cities across the country continue to centrally plan the minutia of urban life, from obsessively detailed land use regulations to impossibly ambitious comprehensive plans. Even many of those who have embraced Jacob's urban design insights scrapped her theoretical underpinnings using rigid top-down plans to create unsettling and unchanging recreations of natural neighborhoods and cities. Nolan Gray, I'm, I was enthused when I saw this piece. I, I was excited to read it. I feel like I found a brother in intellectual arms. So welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Well, great. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's a pleasure. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Well, this is going to be really fun because this is a topic that, that I know you're passionate about and I am as well. For the sake of the listener, can you talk just a little bit about Hayek and, and maybe give a little bit of context of, because we're going to be contrasting Hayek with Jane Jacobs, and I'm assuming more of our audience knows who Jane Jacobs is. Can you just give them a broad introduction to F.A. Hayek and kind of the construct in which he emerges? Sure, absolutely. So F.A. Hayek, he was a 20th century economist. He comes out of the Austrian School of Economics. He won the Nobel Prize in 1974. Uh, for our purposes, one of his key ideas is about the role of prices as a way of exchanging information among people who might never interact. So, for example, let's say I'm building pencils, right? This is, I don't know if this is a common uh, essay. It's really popular. It's called iPencil. I'm building pencils, and there's a shortage of the kind of wood that I need. Now, somebody could track me down and tell me about, oh, there's this bug that's eating all the trees, or the price could fluctuate. But that allows me to respond, change my behavior. That's what allows big, complex economies to work. Hayek also talks a lot about spontaneous orders. So prices are important because they allow these really complex orders like the world economy to emerge without any top-down planning. For me, the interesting thing about Hayek were some of the debates that he had with John Maynard Keynes. And I look back at history and I think, oh my gosh, I would love to have been at some of these events because you, you literally have kind of the two main intellectual cornerstones of economic theory today the Keynesian system and the Hayekian system embodied in these debates that the two had. I know that there are entire, you know, graduate programs about each one of these people. So it's a little bit unfair to ask you to, to, you know, summarize them in a tweet. 
But in, in a sense, could you talk a little bit about the differences between what has become embodied in kind of a Keynesian approach and, and what would be more of a Hayekian approach? Sure. Well, the heart of the disagreement is how much can be essentially planned. Hayek really cut his teeth on what was called the socialist calculation debate, which was a debate between more liberal types, which would have even included uh, you know, people like Keynes, of course, and Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and socialist thinkers. And so the real question was, how much can central planners organize in the economy? The value of the price theory or the value of the sort of dispersed knowledge was that you know, a lot of the knowledge that is important for running the economy can't be centralized into you know, a central board or a central individual. And so that was sort of the big debate. Ultimately, it's one, I think, history has come out mostly for Hayek in terms of the liberalism versus socialism debate, right? So nobody would say, yeah, there should be a central board that plans the minutia of every economic activity. We're still having healthy discussions about what a social net looks like, but nobody would say like, yeah, we need to have a central body running <laughs> businesses and stuff like that. And so that's kind of the debate, that the big economic debate about how much can be planned. And uh, we could go more into Keynes and all that, but th that's sort of the heart of the question, especially related to Jane Jacobs. Before Jane Jacobs had written anything, Hayek wrote a paper called The Use of Knowledge in Society. And you kind of riffed off that paper a little bit, particularly in your focus on three core insights that Hayek had brought up that really parallels the insights of Jane Jacobs. The first one is the importance of local knowledge. Can you talk a little bit about how Hayek and Jacobs see the importance of local knowledge in similar ways? Yeah, well, both of them are, are really interested in the kinds of knowledge that can't be just sort of uh, handed to a board and then used to organize society, right? So within urban planning, at least when Jacobs was writing, and, and I would argue even still today, there was this thought that, oh, we have rules that apply to all cities. You know, we have formulas and ratios, but we can go into any city and start solving problems. You see this today with things like parking mandates. Um, you see this with zoning, right? So it seems kind of silly in a way, like that somebody could ever know, for example, how much multifamily housing a city needs, but we still do this. So Jacobs's big critique is that, you know, you go into these communities and most people who actually live in the communities know what they need better than the supposed expert to know all these ratios, know all these rules. Hayek would say the same kind of thing. I mean, what are entrepreneurs doing? They're running experiments. They're going out and saying, does this community need this business? Could this service be provided at a lower price? These are things that, that you can't just sort of deduct from core principles. These are things that people on the ground learn, and a lot of times they can't really communicate. So if you take that seriously, then you have to empower the people with that local knowledge. You have to say, yeah, it's great that we have all these formulas and, and where we can, you know, maybe where individual planning breaks down, we should hand it up. But otherwise, we, we would say, well, let's maximize that individual knowledge. You know, if people know what their community needs, we shouldn't have central planners trying to take that away from them, take that power away from them. One of the very interesting things to me when, when I was doing planning work and when I got my, my graduate degree in planning is that we would look at what were very like coarse population projections and then very coarse kind of metrics. And we would come up with these very refined ratios and absorption rates for the amount of commercial property that was needed and the amount of residential property that was needed and the amount of R2B property, you know, as if you could define it that 
closely. And then we would go out in the physical landscape and actually zone that amount of property in the places where we felt it would best fit. This is kind of the antithesis of the Jane Jacobs Hayek approach, is it not? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that part of what's so beautiful to Hayek and Jacobs to me is that they could admit and say, we don't know, right? It's kind of scary to say, who knows how much commercial property the city needs or can support, you know, who knows where it should go. But what was so appealing to me when I was reading Jacobs coming from Hayek, I I had the opportunity to reread The Death and Life with a book club. And I just kept seeing these lines that were like, you know, let people plan. People in my community know that if there should be a corner bakery better than even City Hall. And, And that's setting aside that so much planning is even being shifted up to, you know, states or the federal government. Fundamentally, it's just a respect of individuals. The central boards don't have all the knowledge. A lot of the most important knowledge for creating healthy, you know, strong communities is dispersed among a bunch of different people. And uh, if you take that seriously, then you should say, well, how do we create a planning framework that deals with maybe the big problems without taking all that power away from people? The second parallel between Jacobs and Hayek that, that you brought up is, is a belief that decentralized planning is the best way to make the most of that local knowledge. What what do you mean, and, and what would Jacobs mean by decentralized planning? And how does that contrast with planning as we conventionally know it today? As I see it, Jane Jacobs' interpretations of cities is places in which millions of people, or, you know, hundreds or thousands, depending on how big the city is, can come and have their own plan. Nobody wants to move into a community where the, you know, every little detail of their life is planned out for them. That was something that Jane Jacobs looked at in, you know, Corbusier or uh, Ebenezer Howard. You know, she derides it as, uh, you know, you know, totalitarian paternalism, right? <laughs> like, you're, you're basically moving into a little retirement home where everything is uh, controlled. Nobody wants to live that way. Everybody has their own plans. Everybody is engaged in their own process of learning about their communities, about learning about the world. And if you take local knowledge seriously and you want to create great cities, then you need to empower the people who have that local knowledge. So that's where decentralized planning comes in, is it it allows for cities to capitalize that knowledge. It seems to me like throughout the history of, of planning in, in this country that we've all kind of come to a consensus that when it comes to, say, minorities or, or disadvantaged groups – that what was done in the past in this mindset uh, was horrific and was immoral and and we shouldn't have done it yet it seems to me like you know the idea of not you know who should plan for who is something still you know that we argue over that that we have not quite figured out yet and, and we almost tend to be that same group of people who did those things that we look back at kind of in horror now today. Hayek has that line, you know, it's not a matter of whether or not you plan, but who does the planning? What does Jane Jacobs say about that style of who plans for who, I guess? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to even go back to Jane Jacobs' context. I mean, she was living in New York City at the time of Robert Moses, who was this sort of, you know, you think of the great man theory of history, you know, the right. idea that history and society evolved through great men. I don't know if Robert Moses was familiar with that, but I could totally see that being like his operating life philosophy, you know, <laughs> like he was very much like, I'm going to come into New York and we're going to knock down these slums. We're going to knock down these neighborhoods that aren't functioning. We're going to build around the street. You know, we're, we're going to build around the, the car. Very much this idea of, you know, how do you make better cities? Big men have to come in and mix everything up and create zoning maps and 
yada, 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 you know, the, the rest of orthodox urban planning, as Dean Jacobs would call it. Right. We look back at history and we see Napoleon being written about, but not the tens of thousands of people who marched with him, right? Right. And so there are so many, you know, beautiful sections of Jane Jacobs where she's talking about, I love that I have this grocery in my neighborhood and that the grocer is a public character. You know, in terms of cities working day to day, it's really the grocer who looks out for his neighbors or the entrepreneur who, uh, you know, cares for people in the community, watches out for kids as they play on the streets. It's really those people that make urban life function. Uh, and those people all have their own little plans. This idea that, oh, life will be better if we hand over all this power to the experts. I think Jane Jacobs was horrified by that idea. The third parallel that you bring up, you call it the importance of spontaneous orders. And you quote Jacobs as saying that it's those spontaneous orders that make urban life work. What What is a spontaneous order, and why is that an essential part of an urban place? The five-second definition is spontaneous order is uh, an order that is the result of human action, but is not the result of human design. That's from a uh, Scottish philosopher, Adam Ferguson, drawing from the broad tradition that Hayek also draws from. Basically, this idea that by dispersed planning, by decentralized planning, by letting people live their lives as they would like to live them, orders emerge that make everybody's lives better off. So one of the most sublime examples of that in Jane Jacobs's work is the sidewalk ballet. This is the thing that almost everybody remembers about Jane Jacobs, and they think, oh, great, well, the sidewalk ballet, you know, it's this beautiful passage in which she talks about different times of day, different people are using the streets, and by each of them being there, they make for a more interesting environment. People remember that, and I think a lot of people misinterpret it. They well, let's go out and plan nice sidewalks. Certainly, I think placemaking and focusing on creating great places is, is definitely something that maybe city planners should focus on. But the key inside of that passage is that these things emerge naturally. You know, humans naturally want to live in these kinds of communities, and nobody had to plan them. Whenever I read that, I, I get goosebumps, you know, because it's like, <laughs> here's something that's really amazing that nobody planned. You know, it's like, it's like the rainforest. Nobody set out and said, I'm going to put all these little plants here and all these animals are going to live this way and they're all going to live together. And, you know, there's going to be conflict in this way. And, and this is, I think this is a common theme for maybe what, what gives us goosebumps as a species. But the, the key component there is that nobody organized it. it. It seemed to me like the key word in sidewalk ballet was ballet, but many planners read sidewalk. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, here she's talking, too, a lot about, you know, to the person who wants top-down order, to the person who wants the smartest guy in the room calling all the shots, this looks like chaos. This looks like, oh, gosh, all these people, you know, why do the workers need to be next to the, to the you know, stay-at-home parents? Why do they all need to be mingling together? Why does the, you know, the kids, they shouldn't be playing in the road, yada, yada, yada. There's this feeling that, oh, we got to go in, we got to control it. But by controlling it, you kill it, in a way. And I think we've experienced this over the last 50 years, where we've had a lot of top-down control of cities, and we've said, you know, you're going to live over here, you're going to work over here, you're going to shop over there. I think that what Jane Jacobs is really saying, it's, it's a really fantastic insight that I don't think has been appreciated, is, you know, people naturally want to live in these sort of emergent orders. They, they naturally want to live in these cities where things are mingled together, they're mixed. And this impulse to destroy that, to control that, to put, you know, a straitjacket on it, is, uh, it's sad, in a way. Now, you brought up the rainforest. I have to say, when I first read Jane Jacobs, I read her and thought, this is Darwin. 
Like, like, you know, <laughs> Charles Darwin is someone who landed on the Galapagos and just sat there and looked at things and said, wow, let me try to understand what's going on here. And kind of humbled himself to say, all right, you know, let me not pretend I know the plan, but let me try to ask questions and, and see if I can figure out, you know, what all this complexity means. And when I read Jane Jacobs, I thought this is like the urban corollary to Charles Darwin. This is someone who is sitting on the front stoop looking around, trying to make sense of some vast complexity. What? Why does a certain segment of our population hold as sacrosanct kind of natural systems when they are in nature, but then when they're natural systems in humanity, you know, kind of reflexively go to this centralized control as being the way we make things work? You know, that's a great question. There are a few ways you can answer it. I don't want to pathologize it, but I think a big part of it is whether or not you think humans are fundamentally good and competent. You know, if you think that most people have a pretty good handle on how they want to live their lives, and most people have a pretty good handle on, you know, their own conception of the good life, then the impulse is to watch how that plays out, you know, to maybe come in when things are going really wrong. You know, for example, if my conception of the good life is to put a paper factory in the middle of your neighborhood, maybe we could have a conversation about, you know, how I can mitigate the impact on you. But otherwise, it's the impulse should be, hey, you know, good for you. I'm happy that you're living your life the way you want to live it and emergent orders flow from that. Then we develop systems that incorporate everyone's different idea of how to live their life. I think there's another impulse that I think Jane Jacobs and Hayek react to, which is that, you know, people are, you know, they make tons of mistakes. They don't really know what they want and they're going to try to exploit each other. And they're going to try to abuse each other. if They have the opportunity. I'm not naive. I certainly think that there are a lot of situations where you need people who are tasked with maintaining order. And those don't have to be, you know, police. Those can be social entrepreneurs. Those can be community entrepreneurs. The general approach to it should be, what do people naturally want to do? What what do humans, you know, Adam Smith is big on this. Like, Adam Smith is, uh, you know, I got the exact same sense that you did. You know, very Darwinian. Like, you know, how do, how do markets evolve? How do markets emerge? You know, Smith, his theory is, you know, this is just human nature. We just want to trade. We want to exchange. And he talks about that with morality, too. You know, how do how does morality evolve? We have a conversation and we exchange ideas. And in a sense, we buy or don't buy each other's ideas. <laughs> you know, it's tough because we are, we're naturally inclined to look at things and say, okay, who's calling the shots here? But when we take a step back and say, well, maybe nobody's calling the shots here. Maybe everybody's doing their own thing and this spontaneous order is emerging. Now, you're not contending that either Jacobs or Hayek is completely against all centralized planning. And I, I think kind of the reactionary thing that I, I get from people when we have this conversation is, well, you know, without any planning, Chuck, we'll have chaos. They were not against all planning, right? What were the kind of places where Jane Jacobs or, or F.A. Hayek would say some centralized planning is called for and some centralized planning is, is needed and is beneficial? What, what would those kind of instances look like? That's a great question. Something that I'm actually kind of trying to work through just for my own, you know, interest. Because I'm, I'm very interested in urban planning. I'm very passionate about cities. And I've just been trying to sort of, you know, see where do planners fit in this? I think for, for Hayek, it's, it's pretty straightforwardly that, you know, there is some role for developing good institutions. There's a huge component of that that has to emerge. You know, it's this idea of strong institutions, institutions that survive, they have to grow organically over time. And it's hard to fake them. 
but sometimes you can you can approach a problem and say, you know, what? How can we change the institutions to make this problem go away? I think Jane Jacobs kind of has the same approach, and I also think that she's. I think her main concern in the death and life is to say we got to stop this this sort of centralized paternalistic planning that we currently have. An example that I give in the piece was, you know, if you have to plan, plan in such a way that allows for as much decentralized planning as possible. So the New York grid, for example, they planned it out in 1811. It's pretty much just a consistent grid for, uh, you know, all across the city. And within that, you know, it's very flexible. The lots can easily be subdivided and sold and used for this or that. They didn't go out and say, uh, you know, here's where the shop's going to be. Here's where, at least so far as I know, here's where the apartments are going to be. Here's where the single-family houses are going to be. They just laid out the grid. What happened, what filled it in was completely spontaneous. I think another good example would be something like congestion pricing. So you guys talk a lot about infrastructure. We we immediately look at roads and we say, oh, there's traffic. What do we do? We build another lane. We take a bunch of property. We get rid of the sidewalk. And then we build another lane of traffic. But a more effective way that recognizes the importance of decentralized planning might be congestion pricing, right? So you say, hey, there's a lot of demand for this road space at certain times of day. If you really need to use it, then pay this toll that's going to be high at high demand times. But if you can, you know, if you can sort your schedule out and maybe drive it another time of day, you'll pay a much smaller toll. So it's a system that I don't know about Jane Jacobs because she's, uh, <laughs> you know, she's mostly focused with pedestrians. And I think that's great given the context that she was writing in. But someone like Hayek, I think, would definitely be like, yeah, that's great. This is a system that empowers individuals to come up with their own plans to accommodate this um, this new sort of uh, order. I'm going to quote the piece you wrote here. You, you said, where grand plans of this kind are necessary, planners should emphasize flexibility in order to support the dynamism of decentralized planning. Where grand plans are not necessary, Planners should stick to the trial and error of decentralized planning. When I hear planners, when I, when I work with my colleagues, it's really hard for them to draw the line on what is essentially the place where they should intervene and the place where they should back off. Where's the problem that they're trying to cure? I'll, I'll give you an example. I was at a council meeting a, a, long, a long time ago. A guy came in and he was complaining about his neighbor who had left his garbage can out at the end of the driveway for like an obscenely long period of time, right? You, the garbage comes on Tuesday. It's Saturday. The garbage can's still out there. It looks disgusting. He went and, you know, complained to the city council. The city council says, well, we, we can't have this. This is, you know, disorder in our community. You know, this will drive down property values. This sounds like something for our planner to take care of. And they, they turned to the planner and, you know, could you come up with an ordinance and, you know, a, f a fee and a fine and all this stuff. And, you know, the conversation kind of veered off into that. And someone finally asked, you know, hey, did you go talk to your neighbor? Like, you know, did you, did you, did you ever have a conversation <laughs> yeah. with them? Like, you know, maybe they broke their leg or something and, and, you know, were not able to go fetch their garbage can, you know, maybe, did you ever chat with them? And of course the answer was no. <laughs> How do we fight that? you know, human impulse to use the power we have, in a sense, to make the world the way we want it to be? Yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. I think that, I think maybe to, to, to start with the negative and then move to the positive. I think one of the negative components of this sort of centralized planning regime is that it encourages that behavior. 
if you see zoning ordinances and land use ordinances as a way to get rid of things in your community that you don't like, then it makes sense what you know the fellow did about the garbage cans, right? Yeah, and and note whether it's garbage cans or people who don't look like me or people who aren't you know at the same right, price right. point of, as or, me in a housing market, right? Exactly. Or people who could dilute community character, which is you know another very fuzzy thing that comes up a lot that um, you know is troubling. But to, the positive element of that is that I think we need to have more of conversation about that. I mean, I think that. The positive is, uh, is that we, we know for centuries that human societies didn't necessarily have to work that way. You didn't immediately go to a police officer or the city council board to deal with your neighbor engaging in some sort of you know unsavory behavior. We had civil society. You know, We had voluntary organizations that worked to organize people and deal with these sorts of problems. And I think that there's a lot of interesting research, especially coming out of you know institutional economics, about how, you know, how do you organize communities to where these problems can be solved peacefully? And I think that's really exciting. I think it's exciting what, you know, having a conversation is the first step. If people don't know their neighbors, and I think that that's, you know, really disastrous. I think another part of this might be just this fear of neighbors. I think we're, we, we're taught to be afraid of our neighbors. I was walking home from uh, work the other day, and uh, <laughs> I live in one of the safest parts of the country. I live in Northern Virginia. It's the suburb of D.C., this kid was like, hey, come out and play. I, you know, I overheard it. I, I try not to listen to music. I try to be embedded in my community to some degree. Uh, and the kid was, was yelling into the window to their friend, hey, come out and play. The kid yelled back, you know, he's a seven or eight-year-old kid. Oh, I, I can't come out until my dad can come out and watch me. And I was kind of surprised by that. I was like, you know, this is really a safe area. Like, I see kids playing all the time out here. And I think that that's another kind of pernicious element of this whole, we have to go to the police, we have to go to the state to solve these problems, is that it makes us fear our neighbors because we're not used to disagreeing with them. We're not used to negotiating with them. Uh, and I think that's a skill that we're going to have to recultivate if we want to create, you know, for example, a strong town, stronger community. And uh, I don't know a lot about that, but that's just sort of my thought on where we go from here. When I look to the world of economics, I see Hayek's insights as really part of the mainstream critique of standard economic practice. And, you know, in a way the the failure of that kind of modern economic practice seems to be pushing us in a direction that's a, a little bit more Hayekian, you know, we, I, I think you could maybe argue that a little bit, but it, it seems to me like we're moving in that direction. When I look to the world of planning, I see a profession that broadly desires Jane Jacobs ends but embraces almost without questioning the Robert Moses means. What do you think is the, is the future of the planning profession? And do you see any kind of critical moments pushing us in one direction or the other? Yeah, it's, I think it's an excellent observation. Uh, I think it's completely right. It's part of why I wanted to talk about what I took to be the theoretical message of Jane Jacobs, um, which is that, you know, the solution is not to go out and build traditional communities. The solution is to back off. You know, let people create these communities that they naturally want to create and, you know, start thinking about urban planning in a new way. I think that we are starting to have a very serious conversation. You look at what's happening in a lot of major cities like San Francisco and New York City, where they have these really restrictive land use policies, and it's actually affecting national GDP. I mean, there was a, a great study that came out not too long ago about how something like 10% of GDP was lost because people just couldn't afford to live in these highly productive cities. 
I think that the ten percent of GDP is important, but I also think people are having smaller engagements with it. You know, so for example, I just recently wrote uh, a piece on uh, it was garage conversions to apartments. So going forward, driverless cars, a lot of people are saying, you know, we're not going to need as much parking, and people are going to find out when they no longer use their garage, they want to maybe turn it into a granny flat. They want to, you know, have grandma move in with them when she retires. Completely reasonable thing to do. They're going to discover that you know the zoning ordinances don't allow it. And I, I'm hoping that more and more things like that changing, the way that we use cities changing, I think it'll drive this conversation. For the theory, I mean, I think, you know, I think that you are helping to change the conversation. You know, a lot of the contributors at Market Urbanism, we're trying to change the conversation. I think the key thing is just how you frame the issue. What I love about Jane Jacobs, what I really admire about her, is that she just went out and respected people and sort of asked, how, how do people live? You know, if we try to frame it as, Oh, we got to maximize GDP. You know, that's not going to convince anyone, right? Like, I've never, nobody is convinced by, oh, 10% GDP on the ground level, maybe national policymakers, but nobody's going to go to their city council meeting and say, we have to allow this apartment complex because national GDP will be reduced you know, by this fraction of a percent. And so there, I think you just have to have the moral claim. You know, you have to say, look, if, if, if this behavior is not impacting you directly, you know, respect your neighbor. If you want to have a conversation with them, that's that's a component of respect. Um, but using central planning and the state to coerce people and say, you know, no, you can't turn your garage into a small business. You know, I just think that's a, a very peculiar way to approach the problem. And I think that when we expose that, I think it'll go away. I want to run a thought by you and, and just see your reaction to this. Because I part of my thinking, part of my observation has been that We've, in a sense, been affluent enough to kind of outsource the messiness of making places work. And whether that's, you know, instead of having eyes on the street, you hire a police force. Instead of going to talk to my neighbor, uh, I go to the city council and complain. I instead of actually dealing with affordable housing, I zone an apartment complex on the edge of town and then pay for transit to go out there every now and then. And I don't want to say declining affluence, but, but part of an, an economic kind of shift in this country where, where clearly younger generations are being subjected to way different types of, of economic opportunity than people who came of age in the sixties and the seventies and, and even the eighties. Uh, it's a, I don't want to say the outlook is bleak, but it, it's going to be different. I mean, prosperity is going to be measured in a different way. Does that kind of force us? to do some of these things that maybe our affluence has, has allowed us to, to go quite a while without having to do? That's a good question. <laughs> There's a lot of parts there. I think that definitely the way we fund infrastructure has, has led to a lot of unsustainable results. So this idea of the federal government paying capital costs or the developer paying the capital costs and then offloading the operating costs. I think, I think now that we're ending the sort of life cycle of a lot of these roads and a lot of these bridges, I think we're realizing, oh, wow, this is a lot more expensive than we thought it was going to be originally. I definitely think, you know, and, and you guys are driving that conversation. I definitely think a lot of cities are realizing that. You know, you look at what cities are doing and, and, and they're still, they still have this, this idea that infrastructure will save them a, a lot of times. I think a lot of cities are, are changing that. But, you know, this idea of D.C., for example, D.C. just built the streetcar. I mean, this is millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's not entirely clear what uh, value it would create for the community that, you know, maybe smaller 
projects that have done. But there was this idea, we need to revitalize this community. What do we do? We put in more transit infrastructure. Now, I would be fine with expanded buses, but I think that, you know, as cities become more cash-strapped, as cities, you know, they have to get their budgets in order, especially as globalization, you know, drives more competition among cities. I think that cities are going to have to start taking that more seriously. I think that the real key thing is to get the funding stuff down. You know, if the federal government is making it easy to engage in this kind of shenanigans, I think you're going <laughs> to keep seeing it. But, you know, you probably know a lot more about this subject than I do. It, it just seems to me like you, you look at a place like the core of Detroit, or you look at a place like like Memphis, Tennessee, where I've been able to spend a, a fair amount of time. And these are some of the most innovative environments around. And, and culturally, they're great. Economically, they're really vibrant and productive. But it's almost because their desperation has forced them to be. And, you know, I, I come to a place like mine where, you know, th this is one of the poorer towns in Minnesota where I live. Yet on an affluent scale, it's pretty high. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're doing okay. There's a lot of our problems that I, you know, I see people in Memphis, for example, rolling up their sleeves and trying to figure out that we just simply outsource and expect someone else to take care of. Maybe I'm trying to put a, a shiny veneer on decline, but I am like more of an optimist than a pessimist when it comes to what I think is going to be some of the contraction of our cities and kind of a reshaping of, of how we do things. Do, do you share that optimism? I mean, is that maybe a silver lining that you see as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely an optimist, <laughs> um, even when I can't give a good argument for my optimism, but I think I can in this case. I, I think that what you're seeing is a lot of interest in urban living um, and, and, and even even uh, suburban living. I mean, a lot more people are, are moving into cities and the, the cities that, you know, surround them. And I think that, you know, look at, look at the, for example, the suburbs. I think there's so many amazing opportunities there. I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that, you know, suburbs and single-family housing needs to go completely. I very much buy into, you know, if you can pay for that and you can, you can afford the cost, I'm, I'm happy to, to let you live that way. And, and I don't even think that necessarily, by definition, single-family housing is bad. You look at other countries and they, have, they don't have these minimum lot restrictions. They don't have all these setbacks that force all single-family houses to be super spread out. And, of course, as, as you guys have pointed out, financially or fiscally unsustainable. Uh, I think that we can start looking at these small changes. I mean, it's so easy to make so many of these positive changes. If you could go into one city and get rid of minimum parking requirements, you would immediately just empower people to start thinking, what do we do with, with all this space? You know, and we talk about all this fiscal strain, but in an important sense, we're very wealthy. We have a lot of smart people. We have, you know, we're some of the best entrepreneurs in the world. I'm talking about Americans here, and be a little patriotic for a moment. You know, we have some of the best people in the world, and once we free them up to do what they what they might want to do but currently can't with their land. I think we're going to see some amazing things. And it's all about the small stuff. You know, I, I wrote the garage piece. I wrote about trailer parks, too, and why they work so well. You know, this is, these are small changes that could, uh, that could really have a positive impact. And that's why I'm an optimistic. You know, it, it's really not hard to say, you know, we could say to a community, hey, you know, we have all these restrictions that made sense in maybe 1940. Can we get rid of them? <laughs> you know, like, uh, and just starting that conversation. I think, it, I think once we, once we get into the mainstream, you know, like, you know, strong towns and, and a lot of other groups are doing, I think that we'll have a really interesting conversation about what kind of communities we don't want to live in. I think another important thing too is not getting so wrapped up in the culture wars of everybody should live in Manhattan style, 
development or, you know, the, the flip side of that is, you know, don't, don't try to tell me I don't get my single family home. I think that my approach to urban planning issues is healthy cities would create opportunities for everybody to live the way they want to live, uh, assuming they can cover, you know, the costs. My interest is how do we get to that point? How do we get to that point where, you know, everybody can live the way they want to live? Uh, I think that right now a lot of the conversation is focused on suburbs evil or down, you know, urban progressives evil, you know, suburban conservatives evil. This is part of the problem with national politics in general is that people who want to live differently than us, you know, they must they must be <laughs> bad in some way. I kind of think that if we overcome that way of speaking and just have a frank discussion about how do we build stronger communities, how do we build more financially sustainable cities, I think we can make a lot of progress. Let's end with this. You mentioned the national politics and, and we're, you know, we're a nonprofit. We're nonpartisan. We don't engage in any political thing, but I, I'm absolutely bewildered by our national political conversation. I, I have been for a long time. And I, I say that not because the personalities are crazy, which, you know, I, I think you could say that, but I, I don't hear the actual issues that I care about in any way being defined or, or, or discussed let alone any type of solution to, you know, or response to any kind of problem. Are you bewildered by this? And is there a, you know, do, do you find any hope in that? Or are you just kind of looking for something else? Well, you know, I said I was an optimist a few minutes ago, but whenever I read anything about national politics, uh, you know, I have to <laughs> check that. My focus is on cities and, and, and communities. And I think that when you look at it at that level, when you can really get people together and have a face-to-face -face conversation, and say, hey, I want to start a business in my garage. Oh, well, we have this restriction that prevents that. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> you know, like when you really have that face-to-face -face conversation, you don't have these sorts of, you know, ridiculous national discussions that are going on over Twitter, which, you know, I would say probably is not the healthiest way to have a disagreement. I think another big part of it, too, is just the scope of what's under political control. Going back to this idea of letting people live the way they want to live. If you have institutions that make sure that people's decentralized planning uh, has a positive impact on the community rather than say a negative, you know, so you make them internalize sort of the negative components of what they're doing with their land, or you make them pay the full price of the extra infrastructure that they might need. I think that if you depoliticize a lot of these issues, the sort of anger and aggression will largely go away. This idea of if you get the central planning board in, I think, or, you know, the police involved or, you know, the federal regulators involved, I think things get a lot nastier than they need to be. Um, certainly not to say that those people are never necessary. They're necessary, I think, in a lot of circumstances. But I think if we start having a more of a conversation about how can we come together and and really just meet face-to-face -face and just take an honest look at the policy issues, I'm a lot more optimistic on that. And and I don't, I don't know, I don't say that because I think it's going to lead to my policy goals. I just say that because, you know, Whenever you have a problem, it's so much easier if you have people in your community coming face to face. It's a big issue. Uh, it's scary. Uh, it's so scary. I don't think about it that much. I mainly think about things like trailer parks and garage businesses. But, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting talk going on in this field. Nolan Gray. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We we have to uh, have a, a closer relationship with the market urbanism people. I, I'd love to have you guys on more and chat about these things because there's a there's a ton of insights that you have and you guys are all doing great work there. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. 
Take care and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 